in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you because you are so, so good. Lord God, as we are here, we ask that you would continually remind us of that. Lord God, continually remind us of your goodness and of your grace. Lord God, that we are not here for any other reason. We are not here to look cool in the eyes of the world. We are not here because it will make us prosperous or make our lives easier. We are here because we believe that what you have written in your word is true. Lord God, we are here because we believe that you and you alone are the only way to be saved, that you and you alone are the only way to eternal life. And so, Lord God, as we're here today, I pray, I pray that you would take me, that you would use me in whatever way you see fit. Lord God, that you would get rid of any of, uh, any of my stuttering, my rambling, and use me in whatever way you see fit to preach your word. Lord God, I ask that you would give understanding, that you would give wisdom to all of us here to understand what is being said, to apply it. So Lord God, you, you are so good. And you are all, all that we could possibly ever need. So in your great and your holy name, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So why do the Psalms exist? No, really, that, that actually is the question of the sermon today. I mean, in, in a massive collection of spiritual truth and early history and future prophecy, this thing right here, why did God see fit to include a book of poetry? See, it always seemed really strange to me whenever I studied the Bible, because there are books that teach history, there are books that teach spiritual truth. There are books that record God's commandments to his people, Jews and Gentiles, there are books that document the prophecies and the decrees and proclamations from God himself. In fact, most of the books fit two or more of those categories. But the Psalms, at first glance, they don't really do that. They always kind of confused and intrigued me when I read them. So they're just different from everything else. They're, they're a collection of poems and songs and so many different authors, and they don't really seem to tie together to any sort of meaningful whole when you read them at first. Now, you, some of you could say to me, well, there's a whole section of the Old Testament called the poetic books. And yeah, yeah, there are the poetic books. Uh, but even among those, Psalms is still kind of strange. Proverbs are right to the point, short, concise lessons of practical wisdom. Uh, Job, it's the epic tale of a man wholly trusting in God despite the absolutely horrible hardships that he faces because of it. Ecclesiastes, you've got man's search for meaning in life, and Song of Solomon, you've got a story of godly romance and an allegory for how God pursues and loves us. But the Psalms are disconnected, they're, they're one-offs, poems, songs about so many different topics. So why? Well, this might be shocking to some of you, but we're not purely logical beings. We're, uh, we're messy, we're imperfect, we're illogical, we're creative and emotional. Oh, so emotional beings. And yeah, we have rational minds. We can understand and intuit logical thoughts, but so often we find ourselves moved by our hearts, by our emotions, uh, by the beauty that we see around us more than cold, hard logic. See, God is the creator of the universe, and as the creator of the universe, that automatically means He's the creator of everything, and that includes all of those amazing, beautiful things. So turn with me to Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. 
Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? See, God created the heavens, he created the stars and the planets in the night sky. Make no mistake, our God is beautiful, and the works of his hands are beautiful as well. This is partially where I believe that the reason God chose to include the Psalms lies in. He gave us what we need to hear, but he gave it to us in a way that we can understand and we can appreciate. Now, there's so much to study and experience in the Psalms. And theologians and pastors have written so many books, preached entire series on the Psalms. So there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to cover everything in a single sermon. So instead, I'm going to focus on four specific aspects. Focus on the beauty of the Psalms, but more specifically, the beauty of poetry, the beauty of truth, the beauty of God's law, and the beauty of love. Through these four concepts, these four aspects of this wonderful, confusing, messy book, I'm uh, just hoping to, to whet your appetite a little bit with this. I encourage you to read it, study, discover more on your own. So let's go through the beauty of poetry. Poetry is one of the most fundamental forms of art in the entire world. Throughout nearly all societies, throughout all of history, poetry has been recorded and preserved. It's used to convey tons of things, from emotion to truth to history, even philosophy. It follows different literary rules and guidelines depending on what society and the time in which it was written. But one thing it always does is it always seeks to provide meaning and an invitation to analysis from its readers. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So most of us know this psalm. Being avid churchgoers, a good amount of us could probably recite this psalm from memory. But why is that? Well, a part of it is just because we, a lot of us have been going to church so long, and yeah, we tend to absorb it through osmosis. You read the Bible enough times, you pick it up. But there is another more important point, and another more important reason. It's, it's easy to memorize. The, the words, they flow beautifully into each other. There's, there's cohesiveness, there's harmony in the way that it was written. Now, a little bit of history. Before modern times, before the printing press and more recently digital technology, 
access to written word was not very common. It was a lot harder to gain access to scriptures, history, to anything uh, than it is today. So we had to listen to something being read publicly, go to church, go to the town square, go to the university. Or if we were lucky enough to live near a synagogue, church, or library, then we might be able to go out, pull a scroll or a book out, and read it there. See, this is why poetry was so important in the ancient world and continues to be important to this day. It's way easier and more engaging to read and memorize than just a simple list of facts. It's why so many people have their favorite psalm memorized, their favorite two or three psalms memorized, unless people have their favorite book of Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the early days of the church, there were a lot of creeds that were distributed. Uh, one such creed is in 1 Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. See, these creeds were written in a poetic style, in a way that was easily memorized and understood. Once again, in that ancient time, when paper was not easy to come by. It was not cheap, it was not durable. So we can see God likes to use the same tricks, because they're good tricks. So with the Psalms, their beautiful sentence structure, their adherence to poetic standard, made it so much easier for the word of God to be read, to be memorized, and then to be proclaimed to the whole world. Another thing I want to point out is how well the Psalms translate into so many different languages. If you watch or read or listen to any media that was originally written in a different language, you'll most likely appreciate this much more. Anybody who watches import, uh, import movies or films or tries to read poetry that's been translated three or four times, it's a jumbled mess. You can't understand a single thing of it. So, Because there is so much context and beauty and cultural significance inside of poetry and in any work that gets lost when it's translated. Nuanced aspects like flow or timing or even basic phonetic structure, it gets altered for the worse, sometimes destroyed and altogether lost, despite having good translators. But this is another reason that the Psalms are so beautiful. So that even when translated so many times to so many different languages, they're still considered wonderfully poetic. They're still considered beautiful. I mean, we can see that in modern songwriting, in modern hymns, modern worship songs. They take passages straight out of the translations of the Psalms and turn them into beautiful, wonderful works of art and praise. See, God does everything for a reason. There's no happy accidents. There's no oversights in God's word. He gave us church ordinances like water baptism and communion because we are physical beings. We have imperfect memories. The physical acts make the meaning behind those crystal clear. In the same way, God gave us 
this collection of books, all 66 of them, because we are thinking creatures, that we have rational minds. He wants us to know him with all of our mind as well as all of our heart. He gave us the Psalms because we are artistic and creative beings and we long for beauty and for meaning. See, poetry is an art. It's an outlet for creativity. From the proudest anthems to the most mournful laments, poetry helps us to express things in a way that can be preserved and disseminated throughout all of mankind. And with such a powerful tool in his arsenal, why wouldn't God use this method to reach humanity? Now, the beauty of truth. God is truth. Right? I think we can agree on that. God is truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. God is the final authority on all things right and true. There is no higher authority than God. It is in him and in his word that we find pure, absolute truth. Now, unfortunately, we live in a time where that's a contentious statement. That's divisive. The world at large has abandoned truth. If you mention truth in a conversation, you're probably going to run into that classic rebuttal of, oh, well, that's true for you. It's not true for me. Or that's great that you believe that, but that's not, uh, that's not my truth. Now, take that a step further and you say that God is truth, that God's word is truth. Well, now you're probably just talking to the air because whoever you were talking with walked away and left you to your craziness. All right, so... Turn with me to Psalm 43. That is Psalm 43. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go into the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation my God. See, the psalmist here delights in God's truth, letting it lead him, letting it guide his steps. He offers praise to God, his exceeding joy. That's how we should be. You can say God, he is our exceeding joy, that we are glad in God. Whatever we have, whatever we don't have, but we are glad in God. When the psalmist is downcast, when he's oppressed by the deceitful and the unjust, he finds refuge in God. He finds guidance in God's truth. Now notice the people that he needs refuge from. The deceitful and the unjust. There's a lot of deceitful and unjust people out there now. Especially in this time. Everyone has an angle. Everyone has an opinion or an agenda that they want to push. In an age where truth has been deemed optional, uh, deceit is just normal. It's common. So it's relevant even necessary in this time that we live in, to cling all the more to God's truth. Now, this all sounds pretty good so far, right? I mean, I know that God's truth, so I'm doing pretty good. You guys know that God's truth is good, uh, so you're doing pretty good. But unfortunately, with that comes a little bit of discomfort. 
Because God's word is truth, that means we need to accept that truth. That means we need to study that truth. We need to accept that truth over our own wants and our own desires. When we make mistakes, when we ignore the truth to enjoy our little sin, God will hold us accountable. King David, King David learned that the hard way. Turn to Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God's truth lays our sin bare. We can't run from our sin. We can't hide from our sin. King David knew he messed up. He knew he messed up bad. Knowing God's law, knowing God's truth, he still committed horrible sins. Psalm 51 is his contrition. It's his apology and his lament. It says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. King David isn't just asking for mercy or acknowledging his mistake. He realizes that God's truth is real, tangible, and powerful. He's asking for more of God here, more of God's truth in his inward being. He is asking for a true repentance. Now, see, another aspect of the beauty of truth also ties in with the, uh, the beauty of poetry that we talked about earlier. There's a lot of poetic language in the Bible. With that poetic language comes the need for discernment and wisdom. It's one of the big reasons that we always pray for God's wisdom on our, uh, our pastors. We're imperfect. We're fallen. We make mistakes. And if we are not actively looking and discerning, what needs to be said, bad things can happen. See, if we don't have wisdom, if we interpret everything entirely literally, now, then Jesus is a grapevine growing in the Middle East, and we are holy branches physically attached to him. Also, if you read the King James Version, then, um, well, unicorns exist. Congratulations! See, this is why context and discernment are very important in understanding truth. All right. You've probably heard of... Uh, imprecatory psalms, right? You know the ones. You know, the fiery, angry psalms where God's wrath is meted out on the enemies of the people. Uh, let's read one of those. Turn to Psalm 83, verses 13 through 15. Psalm 83, verses 13 through 15. All right. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, 
so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Yikes. That sounds pretty intense, right? You know, as a worship leader, uh, it's my privilege to be able to read a psalm at the beginning of every church service. But it always feels a little bit strange when you open up your worship service by reading an imprecatory psalm. It's like, you know, thank you, Lord, for your, for your great love and mercy. And may my enemies be set on fire and destroyed. <laughs> but the truth is that all of God's word is useful to us. When interpreting these psalms, first we need to realize that God is completely righteous. That God is completely just. His wrath and his anger is always righteous. He is God. And he alone gets to deal with sin and evildoers as he sees appropriate. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that neighbor that steals your mail and that coworker that never refills the coffee pot, you don't get to smite them with righteous fury. It's not what those are saying. What we can take from these Psalms, however, is God's attitude towards sin. It is calling us to be as ruthless and decisive against our own sin and sinful behaviors as God is against his enemies in these imprecatory Psalms. See, the beauty of truth is apparent in the Psalms. God does not want us to be ignorant but rather he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now the beauty of God's law. In our modern culture, we see rules, laws, and commands as restrictive and altogether unappealing. We bristle at the idea of someone or something putting restrictions on our freedom. I'm a free person living in a free country. Why should I be limited? But as a people, as a culture, we find ourselves more and more living for our own satisfaction than we do for our own advancement and our glory. Businessmen, athletes, influencers, celebrities, these, these are what our society holds up as the pinnacle of humanity. It's what we could be. It's what we should aspire to. But at the same time, pastors, teachers, mothers, fathers, these people are overlooked and underappreciated. See, we're taught nowadays that our own happiness, that our own personal gain is paramount. And this is partially where our dislike of laws and rules come from. We all say we should obey the law. Criminals should be punished. Upstanding citizens should be praised, should be rewarded. But how often do we think that justice has been served when we're on the receiving end of it? When you were pulled over for going nine over on the, uh, the freeway, you were given a citation for parking incorrectly. Does any of us rejoice in that moment? Does anyone really think to themselves that justice has been done, that a wrongdoer has been punished? No. Even as Christians, we, we still have a problem with authority, with rules and regulations. Now, we disagree with laws and rules imposed by our government all the time. We bristle and protest when told we have to comply with certain regulations. Even when we're protesting things that are unfair, even when we speak out against injustices, and those who commit them upon us when they are truly righteous causes, think about what you're thinking in that moment. At least for me, what I'm thinking in that moment, what is the motivation, seconds and minutes, 
hours that I'm fighting or debating or protesting, if I'm honest with myself, if we're honest with ourselves, it's at least a small portion of time, at least a small part of us that says, how dare you restrict and limit me, rather than how dare you restrict and limit our God. The Psalms provide a stark, stark contrast to this. In the Psalms, we see time and time again, the writers praising God for his statutes. Turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24. Psalm 18, 22 through 24. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. The Lord has rewarded me according to, his right, according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. See, David attributes his righteousness partly to following God's rules and not discarding God's statutes. As Christians, as followers of Christ, this is where we need to be. As inconvenient and non-self-centric as it is, we need to be highlighting God's plan and submit ourselves to his rules, not our own plans. Psalm 18 is about submitting yourself to God and letting him deal with the enemy. We submit ourselves to God by following his law, his rules. We show our humility. We show that we are in desperate need of guidance by admitting that we are imperfect, that we are fallen, and we need him. Turn to Psalm 119, verses 11 through 16. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth and the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. The psalmist here is very clearly looking favorably on God's statutes. This Psalm 119 is quite literally an ode, a song about the beauty of law and statutes. It mentions statutes, precepts, rules, and laws over 80 times. One psalm, 80 times. The psalm is all about how the statutes and the rules of God are what keeps the author alive and persevering. Throughout all the trials and the turmoil in the author's life, he turned to God's perfect laws to guide him. It says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I'm going to read that again. Listen carefully. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will delight in your statutes. This is not a kid who reluctantly obeys his parents because he knows he's going to be punished otherwise. 
This, this is the language of a student eagerly sitting in the front row, soaking up every word from his good and wise teacher. The student knows that a price was paid to get him into that classroom. And if the teacher is wise, if the teacher is good, the lessons, the statutes and precepts imparted on that student will guide and shape and enrich the student's life. Our teacher is the great creator and savior, God himself. Our teacher is the infinitely wise and powerful God of salvation. There was a price paid for us. And because of that, we can sit at our God's feet, receiving eagerly every good thing that he has for us. Now, the enemy knows this. Oh boy, the enemy knows this. It's why society tells us that there are rules, or the rules are limiting and annoying. It's why generations are self-centered and egotistical. The enemy is referred to as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. As society turns its back on God, it will inevitably turn its back on the values and the instruction of God. Turn to Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who is good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. That sounds disturbingly close to our world today. See, in Romans 1.22, Paul talks about the unrighteous, saying, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And what do fools say? Well, according to Psalm 14, fools say in their heart, there is no God. And without God, they have no good and perfect rules, no good statutes, no precepts to follow. There is only corruption and abominable deeds. See, without good and perfect rules and laws, we have no guidance. Without the perfect wisdom of God, Rules and laws become nothing more than hindrances to our dark desires and our selfish ambitions. God knows us. He knows our tendencies to chaos, to disobedience. He knows our sin nature and our evil thoughts. God gives us his statutes and his precepts to show his perfect standards and to keep constant in our minds the straight and narrow path. That is the beauty of God's law. That is the importance of God's law. Moving on to the beauty of God's love. Now, when you think of God's love, what do you think? Probably think the cross. The Savior's birth, life, death, resurrection. You could also picture the second coming. When God returns to rescue his people from this wretched and rebellious world that we are in. On the flip side, what do you think of uh, God's wrath? The uh, plagues of Egypt, it's pretty wrathful. The uh, command of King Saul, uh, destroying the Amalekites utterly. Or heck, maybe even the imprecatory Psalms, we just talked about them, that's pretty fresh. Now, there's a common misconception that most non-believers have about God. And unfortunately, far too many Christians have this misconception as well. That is, that the God of the Old Testament is angry, wrathful, and bitter, who doesn't forgive 
takes joy in smiting down people. And the New Testament God is a peaceful, loving God, full of grace and forgiveness. Now, most of you know this is a very incomplete and skewed view. God is steadfast. He doesn't change. Both the Old and New Testaments confirm this. I'm going to take a few, uh, look at a few passages. First, Malachi 3, verse 6. Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now turn to Hebrews 13, verse 8. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think that's pretty cut and dry, right? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God confirms his eternal and steadfast nature. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't change his nature between the Testaments. He didn't go from wrathful and vengeance to forgiveness and loving. Jesus is not a different God. He is not an inferior being to God. He loves us fully and completely throughout all of time, more than we can comprehend. Turn to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work your hands. God's love is steadfast. It's not temporary. It's not temperamental. God created us out of love and sustains us out of love. He saw us fall and turn our backs on him, but still his steadfast love endures. The psalmist for 138 says that God is on high, but he still regards the lowly. God will preserve us according to his will to fulfill the purpose he has for our lives. God knows every moment of our lives, and he is intimately aware of everything that we say and think and do. Think about that for a moment. Like, really think about that. Let it sink in. God knows. 
Your every victory, your every failure, he knows. Your innermost thoughts, all of your heart's desires, both good and ugly. Psalm 139 says that he has searched us and he knows us, that he knows our rising up and going down, that he saw our every day. He had written every single one of them down before we were even born. Our God is a God of love. Only a God capable of agape, unconditional love could see us in all of our depravity and our selfishness and our sin and still be willing to pay the price that he did. Now, that's something you've heard quite a lot throughout the Psalms. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. That phrase is repeated so many times, not just in the Psalms, but in uh, most of the Bible. I mean, it's used over 120 times in the Psalms alone. Psalm 136 is probably the most obvious uh, example of this as every verse, literally every verse ends, his steadfast love endures forever. Psalmist is trying to get a point across. Uh, Psalm 40 is another great example of God's great and steadfast love for us. Uh, It talks about how God delivers us time and time again. So let's go to Psalm 40. In particular, verses 9 through 11. Psalm 40, verses 9 through 11. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David is making known the love of God. He proclaims God's goodness and love to the great congregation. He is confident and assured of the everlasting eternal nature of God's love. He knows what we know is that our God is good. Our God is eternal and our God loves us. Now I'm going to take a look at a few verses, rapid fire. Try and keep up if you want, but they will be on the screen. Uh, First, we're going to be looking at Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8. Psalm 2, 7 through 8. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Next, Psalm 22, 14 through 16. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and needy and saves the life of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. 
and precious is their blood in his sight. Last Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So remember when I asked about God's love a little bit earlier and the first thing that came to mind? Jesus, the Messiah, Savior, his sacrifice on the cross and his glorious return to save his people. See, the Psalms also contain prophecy and they point forward towards God's love. See, the biggest moment in all of history, the event that proves God's great and steadfast love to us beyond the shadow of a doubt, it's covered in the Psalms. Many, many times it is covered in the Psalms. See, these four are just a few of the Psalms that point to Jesus the Messiah. God wants us to know that we have hope. That no matter what we might endure or experience in this life, that we have a loving Savior. We have a perfect Father that we are loved and we are not forgotten. We are not forsaken. The Psalms clearly show God's incredible love for us. He knows us fully. He knows us completely. He offers us refuge in times of distress. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And he promises to protect us and deliver us until our task here on earth is done. He knows our condition. He knows our failings. He knows how we're in need for redemption and for a savior. He provides us with the promise of that savior, a perfect sacrifice to pay the ransom and a king to provide justice and respite in equal measure. So why the Psalms? When you read through the Psalms, you see God's glory. You see a being who is infinitely beautiful, who is infinitely wise, infinitely just, and infinitely loving. There is no book quite like the Psalms to see all the attributes of God in such a clear and complete way. Everything that we've read here today only scratches the surface of everything that the Psalms have to offer. But like I said at the beginning of the sermon, theologians, scholars, pastors, poets, they've written hundreds upon hundreds of volumes on the Psalms. Each Psalm has been studied, explored, and discussed many, many times over thousands of years. See, there's a Psalm for every emotion that you're feeling. There's a Psalm for just about any experience that you could be going through. We can see God's greatness through how he communicates to us. He shows us his perfect understanding of the emotions that we as emotional beings feel and his perfect grasp of literary beauty to communicate with us. He shows us his perfect knowledge and the final authority on all that is right and true. He guides us and he leads us through his perfect and his righteous laws, reminding us of his standards. And he shows us his steadfast and eternal love. Let's close with one final psalm. I think this one sums up everything that I've been trying to say. Far better than I could have said it. Let's go to Psalm 19.
I'm being honest, this was actually the psalm that started this entire sermon. This is, uh, I wanted to just preach on on 19, but as I read through it, I realized that it follows a very, very clear pattern. That's where I got the pattern for this entire sermon from. So Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden falls. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. Well, at this point, I think we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Pastor John can come up. Amen. That was a beautiful message. Amen. Amen. Well, now we are going to celebrate that event the Psalms culminated in. And that is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just remembered I'm worship leader today.
Amen. Throughout the whole message. The thing that struck me is the greatness of God. Is the absolute greatness of God. Everything that Chris was saying from the Psalms. Our God is just. And I hate to repeat, but our God is just. Our God is merciful. Our God is right and good. This world, with all its effort and all its strength and all of everything it has, runs from him. But we, we have the awesome privilege, as all those who have witnessed and have been witnesses down through the ages, to be the witness to this fleeing world. The witness of what? The witness of his justice. The witness of his mercy. The witness.